Welcome to the Freeman Law Project, a podcast with thought-provoking insights on tax and white-collar matters, the art of trial lawyering, and the most influential legal issues of the day. Brought to you by some of the nation's top legal minds. And now, your host. Welcome to the Freeman Law Project and another episode. Uh, I am your host, Jason Freeman, alongside Matthew Roberts. Matt, thanks for being on today. As always, great to be here, Jason. So we are back with our weekly installment of the Tax Court in Grief, where we cover the past week's substantive tax opinions. As you know, we post outlines of the opinions on our insights blog at www.freemanlaw.com so you can go there to follow along or you can just listen in as we share our thoughts and insights on the cases matt i'll go ahead and get us started i guess with the kroner case should be a pretty short one it's a an opinion from judge marvel kroner v commissioner And this case dealt with some transfers of funds to the taxpayer during the years at issue and and whether or not they constituted a gift under Section 102 or alternatively, were they gross income? And then there's a a subsidiary penalty issue here uh, through Section 6751B, which looks like is going to be a little bit of a theme in this week's opinions as it's kind of been over the last, you know, last year or two is that that section has really come to life. So the, the issue here, the, the substantive issue is whether or not some amounts that were transferred to the taxpayer, whether or not these transfers were gifts. So for our listeners who are are not initiated in this, Section 102 of the Internal Revenue Code provides that a gift to a taxpayer, when a taxpayer receives a gift, it is not taxable income. So there's no tax to the recipient. Now, the Supreme Court in some venerable, uh, venerable case law going back decades, case called Duberstein, has kind of superimposed some additional requirements onto this concept of what constitutes a gift for Section 102 purposes. And here, you know, the taxpayer has got to demonstrate that the gift was given out of detached and disinterested generosity. And it's ultimately the intention of the donor that that really controls but the court looks at that intention through an objective inquiry or an objective lens and looks at the contextual evidence and and the situation to determine whether or not it's the kind of gift that was made out of detached and disinterested generosity. Uh, Here, unfortunately, the taxpayer was not able to convince the tax court who operates as the finder of fact in such cases that the gift that was received or the amount that was received was a gift within the meaning of section 102. 
Therefore, the consequence is it's taxable income. Now, the next issue that arises is whether or not the penalty that was assessed by the IRS for this failure to report this gross income was valid or whether there were procedural flaws that would require the court to, uh, to nix the penalty. So the specific issue here is whether or not the IRS complied with section 6751B in providing the uh, in providing notice of the penalty and that that provision we're going to get into some more nuance i think in in a few of the questions so i'll a uh, few of the cases so i'll leave uh, a little bit hanging on ex explaining 6751 but in this case the court found that it was enough that if the irs provides a letter a penalty letter to a taxpayer that has or carries a right to file a protest with IRS appeals, then an initial determination of the penalty has been made for purposes of section 6751. And 6751 specifically requires managerial sign-off, a physical signature approving a penalty before the IRS makes that notification to the taxpayer of the penalty. It appears here that the IRS was not able to factually demonstrate that it had, a, you know, had actually gone through that process and had uh, acquired that, that managerial signature to approve the penalty. And so therefore, uh, while the taxpayer lost on the substantive tax issue, uh, the taxpayer prevailed on the procedural penalty issue. And Jason, I'll just add, you know, some interesting tidbits on this case. I, I always find it interesting on, on uh, any time Duberstein is raised, that brings me back to my law school days of, of learning that case. Um, in, in this case, the, the relationship with the taxpayer or, or where the uh, quote gifts came from was from a former business partner. Um, and the amounts, I, I believe, were in the millions of dollars. Um, and, you know, it's a little unusual for that type of relationship for, for partners to be giving gifts of, of that magnitude. And one of the things that kind of hurt the taxpayer was the donor, the, the business partner, did not show up for trial. And as you mentioned a, a moment ago, it's the donor's intent that really controls in these types of cases. So it's, it's going to be hard for a, a taxpayer to kind of win this case, uh, especially in this unusual relationship to, when the donor is not there to be able to testify as to why the, the transfers were made. Uh, you know, it's, you're absolutely right, Matt. And it, you know, the factual background is even probably a little more interesting even than that, um, because the, you know, the former business partner, again, gave pretty, pretty large uh, large amounts and some of it was actually given i believe to the taxpayers offshore trusts which adds kind of another wrinkle into this that you know i think from the court's eyes is is somewhat unusual you know when you look back to the duberstein case if if i recall correctly uh it arose in the context of a of a vehicle maybe a cadillac back in the 60s or 70s that was 
provided to an employee. Um, you know, it's one of those cases you read in law school and then you, you know the concept, but you, you don't revisit uh, all that often. But it's always kind of put a cloud or an, an inability to, to take this gift stance when it comes to, you know, employer-employee relationships. And I don't think it's too many steps removed to uh, draw somewhat similar conclusions in the context of partners or former business partners. And, and Jason, I, the listeners, I don't know if they're aware, you are actually a, a, a law professor in your, in your spare time, which, which I don't know where you find the spare time to do it, but I'm, I'm curious, do, they, do, you, do you still teach the Duberstein case? Is that still being taught in law school? We do. It, it is a, uh, it's one of the black letter law cases and one of the, one of those cases where the Supreme Court has, has dipped its toes into the tax law genre and given us a fairly interesting, uh, you know, fairly interesting standard of detached and disinterested generosity and has really, you know, it, it drawn a distinction between a gift within the meaning of section 102 with this detached and disinterested generosity standard superimposed on it and and the distinction between that and and you know a gift within the common law meaning um and you know so you know one of the key lessons here is a gift within the meaning of the income tax law uh under section 102 is a different concept than the way we use the word colloquially or the way that the concept has been understood from the common law perspective as it's developed over the years. Interesting. You want to move on to the next case? Let's go. Okay, so it's so a state of bowls, or I, I guess that's the right name. This is TC Memo 2020-71. Um, the issue in, in this case was uh, and this, this is often an issue actually at the tax court is, is whether certain um, advances or payments uh, constituted a loan for federal tax purposes or whether they constituted a gift. Um, there are a host of factors that courts look at to see whether there is a, in fact a, a bona fide loan for federal tax purposes. Um, a lot of times it'll vary depending on, on the circuit that uh, it'll get appealed to under the Golson rule in the tax court. But, you know, some of the factors, uh, and I believe this one was, was Ninth Circuit uh, jurisprudence was, you know, and one of the bigger ones is whether there was a promissory note or other evidence of indebtedness. Usually the courts are looking to see whether, you know, there's some type of formal document that's, that's evidencing this, this debt. Um, whether interest was charged, whether there's security or collateral, um, a fixed maturity date, whether there's been a demand for repayment, whether uh, there's actually been repayment on the loan, um, whether there are any other types of records that kind of substantiate the loans. And in this case, the, the uh, deceased, the, the mother, had um, given ad advances to her son that was in a somewhat uh, tumultuous um, business as an architect, I believe. And um, unfortunately, he or fortunately, he did well at the beginning, but unfortunately, later on, his business kind of floundered. Um, and he, he had to kind of borrow some funds 
from his mother. Well, the IRS came in and, and, and challenged this and, and said, well, you know, these loans need to go into um, the estate, I believe, uh, you know, valued appropriately. And, and um, the, the estate argued essentially, no, these, these were gifts. Well, this, this was kind of a, a win for the taxpayer and a win for the IRS. Um, the court, after looking at the factors and, and particularly the financial condition of the son at, at various times, found that, well, there was no, um, you know, there was no actual expectation of repayment when he was not doing well financially. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it looks more like a gift. But when he was, he had those years where he was doing better and there, you know, there could be an actual expectation of repayment the court characterized those as loans. Um, one of the things to keep in mind on these types of cases, um, and this, this occurs kind of throughout uh, tax law, is anytime you've got related parties that are dealing in transactions, courts are gonna kind of take a closer look because you don't have adverse parties working against each other. Um, you know, the, the parties kind of have, uh, their own separate interest uh, that, that they wouldn't necessarily have if it was at arm's length. Um, and that was one thing the court kind of looked at. They scrutinized uh, the transactions a little more than they normally would. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great point, Matt. It's one of those threads that runs throughout tax law that, that we see is, you know, it, here it's, it's family and you know, loan relationships and the, the court is always going to scrutinize that a little more closely. But yeah, I think the, the, the bigger, more encompassing principle is related party transactions, family transactions, you know, that, that kind of background assumption that you've got an arm's length transaction that, you know, where the, where the court will generally respect the deal struck or the way that it's characterized by the parties, you know, that, that, really doesn't hold in the context of, of transactions between family members and courts are going to, you know, courts are going to look more, much more carefully uh, at the, at the actual factors there. Matt, one of the things you mentioned uh, just kind of as an aside, but that I, I think might be one of the things we should, we should draw out of, uh, you know, draw out for our listeners education is the Golson rule. It's one of those kind of fundamental concepts that for us as tax litigators, you know, we're, we're always thinking about when we get a case uh, put before us and we're trying to vet out, well, what are our, you know, what are our options in terms of courts and what is the jurisdictional law that we're going to be subjected to in various courts and is it different and is there a, you know, a more favorable venue and the Golson rule is is a case that stands for the proposition that the tax court, which is a national court, that the tax court will apply the substantive law that uh, governs in the circuit court to which the case would be appealable. And so, you know, that, that could mean that, let's take the Ninth Circuit as an example, the Ninth Circuit may have a different substantive rule on a particular point of law than the Fifth Circuit. There may be a conflict, a circuit split. 
Well, the tax court is going to generally apply under the Golson rule, the law that applies um, in the circuit to which it would be appealable. So if you got a taxpayer who lives in the Ninth Circuit, California, Ninth Circuit law is going to apply. Conversely, taxpayer lives in Texas, Fifth Circuit law is going to apply under Golson. As you can imagine, that provides some of us in the, in the tax litigation business with creative opportunities uh, for, you know, for thinking through, thinking through our forum shopping options. That's a great point, Jason. So Matt, I'm going to move on to the Sage case, Sage v. Commissioner. This case involved a taxpayer who had transferred several parcels of real estate into what were, what were defined or, or called liquidating trusts that were established for the benefit of mortgage holders on the, of the real estate. And the liquidating trusts subsequently sold off, disposed of the parcels. Um, this case raises the concept of something known as a grantor trust. And, uh, you know, part of the, the background issue here is the taxpayer initially took the position that when he transferred these parcels of property into these trusts, which again were set up for the benefit of, you know, of creditors, um, that he incurred a loss, that it was a loss transaction. That turned out not to be the case from the tax court's point of view. The tax court instead came to the determination that the trusts were what are known as grantor trusts in the, in the tax code. And, and specifically here, we're, we're talking about section 677 for those who want to code citation to go with it. But the idea is that where a trust has certain aspects, like the grantor is the only beneficiary under the trust, or the, the grantor exercises certain other aspects of control over the trust, well, the law may provide that in the eyes of the tax law, that trust and the taxpayer are one and the same and that the trust is therefore a grantor trust that is effectively ignored. Its existence is effectively ignored and it is kind of combined or viewed as one and the same with the taxpayer. Well, the consequence there being that the taxpayer upon contribution of the property did not have a a taxable event or a tax loss triggering event kind of along the lines of you, you can't have a transaction with yourself. Um, and so the, the tax court ends up making that finding and comes to the conclusion that, you know, unfortunately for our taxpayer, no loss transaction. And while the, the, the rest um, was, was not a happy ending for the taxpayer. And Jason, there are analogous, um, there's analogous parts of the code or, or the, the regulations, I guess I should say, the check the box regs 
Um, with respect to single member LLCs um, that are also disregarded, and, and I have quite a few clients that kind of have, you know, it, it doesn't make necessarily uh, sense to them um, that they're because they're not tax professionals that you can have this separate entity um, under state law, but for federal tax purposes, it's, it's going to be disregarded. And so as you mentioned, um, you know, because it's disregarded, you can't really enter into transactions with yourself and for federal tax law, they're going to be disregarded. It's a great point, Matt. You know, since the, since the mid nineties and, and sort of the evolution of the LLC vehicle, state law vehicle, uh, you've, you've really had this, you know, you've, you've had the check the box regulations as they're called, which, you know, we could, talk all day about the nuances of those, but they've, they've kind of brought to the forefront this concept of a, a disregarded entity. And yeah, in the eyes of the tax law, you know, that the, the most common scenario is a single member LLC. Well, it may be a disregarded entity for tax law purposes. Doesn't change the fact that it may exist for state law purposes and may provide uh, liability protection and all the other, uh, you know, aspects that come with an, a state law recognized entity, but in the eyes of the tax law may not exist. And, uh, you know, your, your paradigm example there is a taxpayer contributing property to a disregarded entity or, or selling, you know, quote unquote, selling assets to a disregarded entity. And, you know, in the eyes of the tax law, it's a, it's a total nothing burger. Yep, agreed. So Matt, I'll take up this next case, the McCarthy case. Um, this is McCarthy v. Commissioner. This was a Judge Thornton case and uh, involved a, a taxpayer who, you know, the court always feels compelled to point out the fact that they were themselves a certified public accountant and holder of an MBA, this taxpayer had testified that in 2010, he purchased from a friend a 32.5% interest in what was termed the Hermosa Beach property. So a, what appears to be a, a condo or, or residential type property of some sort. And he allegedly financed this through an interest bearing loan from this very, very good friend. Um, that becomes an important factual premise because the taxpayer deducted fairly significant amounts of interest that were allegedly you know, attributable to this interest-bearing loan from the friend on the property. Um, however, during the year at issue, the court found that factually he made no, he actually made no cash payments with respect to this purported loan and did not make any you know, monetary contributions for taxes or insurance or maintenance of the property that you know, presumably would have been consistent with actually having uh, a 32.5% or any percent interest in the property. So the IRS comes in and on audit disallows uh, a significant portion of the the interest at issue uh, everything that really fit into that category um, 
so, so you know, spoiler alert: the the taxpayer did not did not prevail on this because the taxpayer was not able to to demonstrate any actual payment uh, of of the interest at issue. But you know, a couple of takeaway points of law um, at a very high level. When the IRS comes in and audits and ultimately issues a notice of deficiency, that's what we in the business call a 90-day letter where the IRS is proposing an assessment against the taxpayer, that proposed assessment in the notice of deficiency is presumed correct and the taxpayer generally bears the burden of proving that the determinations are incorrect. There's another uh, point of law that holds that deductions from gross income are, you know, I love this phraseology, they are a matter of legislative grace and the taxpayer bears the burden of proving entitlement to any deductions that are claimed. So, you know, look at it from the framework here as we do in the judicial system that the burden is almost entirely on the taxpayer to prove entitlement to these interest deductions. And you know, if he can't prove that he actually spent some cash on it, can't show that flow of dollars, you know, hasn't, hasn't in the eyes of the court made a credible case. More technically, this issue gets down to, you know, under section 163H, the code prohibits an individual taxpayer from claiming a deduction for personal interest that's paid or accrued during the tax year. Um, there are some limited exceptions to this general rule. One of those is that there's a deduction for what's called qualified residence interest. And so part of what the taxpayer you know, had to prove was that the interest at issue satisfied this statutory definition of qualified residence interest. Now, I will not go through the mind-numbing statutory maze and regulatory maze of how we actually get to that definition. Suffice, I think, to say that the taxpayer was unable to, you know, to clear that factual or evidentiary hurdle. Um, the next issue, much like the first case I was covering in this, dealt with section 6751 and whether or not the IRS had complied with section 6751. And here the court gives us another, another nugget or point of law that the initial determination, this determination, um, for section 6751 purposes occurs no later than when the proposed adjustments are communicated to the taxpayer formally as part of a communication that advises the taxpayer that penalties will be proposed and that gives the taxpayer the right to appeal them with appeals. And so that is at the very least, that is a critical point before which the IRS must have satisfied the procedural hurdles in 6751, namely managerial you know, oversight or supervisory uh, sign-off 
on the penalty. So, you know, here, <laughs> in a nutshell, I think this case kind of demonstrates that, that taxpayers, you know, have a burden to strictly comply with the statutory requirements to deduct interest. But the IRS likewise has to strictly comply with the statutory requirements for asserting most penalties. And here, much as the taxpayer was unable to demonstrate that he had satisfied his requirements, the IRS was also uh, you know, unable to satisfy or demonstrate its satisfaction of the requirements to impose the penalties. So eh, split, um, it's, it's, always a, it's always good to see the taxpayer prevail on the tax issues, on the penalty issues. Agreed, Jason. I'll, I'll mention another point in this case. I always find this interesting, um, you know, with information returns. Um, it, it looks like the taxpayer reported the interest, mortgage interest on Schedule A. It was about 48000 but that uh, some, uh, the, the person who had received the interest had issued a 1098 for 18,000 um, and for a lot of people that don't, you know, don't necessarily know this, the IRS has a very sophisticated uh, uh, computer system that can match these information returns with the actual tax return. And my guess is, even though it wasn't necessarily stated in here, is that the IRS computer sat there and said, wait a minute, we're only showing a 1098 mortgage interest statement for about 18,000 he's claiming about 30,000 more. We need to take another look at this return and, and see what the discrepancy is. You know, Matt, the information return matching process is something that, you know, really we've seen it over the last 10 years, particularly the last maybe five or more, but you know, it's something the IRS has got better and better at, um, as it should with, with improvements in, computer systems, but, you know, it's something that we see more and more as an initiative with the IRS and is, is one of those big, you know, one of the big prompters of, of audits. You want to go to the next one? Let's do it. Okay. This one is Brandon Sand and Gravel Company LLC versus Commissioner TC Memo 2020-76. Um, Brandon Sand was a mining company, um, as its name suggests, it mined sand and gravel deposits on various properties that it owned. Um, as part of the mining process, it would mine cell deposits in a manner that would permit construction of water storage reservoirs. Um, and as what ended up happening essentially was this governmental entity um, that, that provides water and, and other, uh, I guess, power uh, processes, um, you know, became interested in, in making use of these water storage reservoirs that Brandon Sand had. So Brandon Sand ended up um, giving uh, an undivided interest uh, in these water storage um, they gave it through an easement it held on the property to this government entity, which would qualify it for, uh, would qualify Brandon Sand to get a charitable contribution um, for the donation. And Brandon Sand was a partnership, so it filed a 1065 partnership return uh, 
as is required for um, larger donations, you have to attach Form 8283, um, particularly when it relates to a non-cash charitable contribution. So they did that. They, they attached it to the 1065. However, there, there was a couple of problems with the 8283. Um, the first thing that, that probably got some attention from the IRS was it included two page two pages and did not have a page one. Um, in addition, on the second page two, it had a handwritten note that said see attached appraisal. Um, the appraisal was done by what by someone that was not what's known as a qualified appraiser. In other words, they didn't have the expertise that's generally required under the regulations to make a estimate of the value of the property that is transferred. And this is important, the fair market value, because that determines what charitable contribution deduction you get to receive and in turn what the partners are going to uh, receive on their return. So there were also some other issues on the 8283 um, on their, their adjusted basis of these uh, easements that they transferred, they put none, uh, zero basis. And um, they also <laughs> sat there and pretty much communicated to the IRS on the form 8283 that the appraiser was not a licensed real estate um, appraiser, which, which I just discussed a minute ago. So anyway, the, the return gets audited by the IRS. The IRS denies the $200,000 charitable contribution that they claimed. Um, the court is, uh, it comes in to the mix and has to decide whether they have complied with the requirements of the regulation that deal with the filing of Form 8283. Um, the court essentially says no. Um, one of the ma major issues was the uh, person who made the determination of fair market value was not a qualified appraiser. Um, the appraisal that was made, the form was also didn't meet certain qualifications in the regs related to what an appraisal has to include, um, et cetera. So the court denied it, but as is common if there is uh, not technical compliance with a regulatory provision, particularly in these types of charitable contribution cases, you can make an argument because there is precedent out there from the tax court that you substantially complied with the requirements. So in other words, you didn't meet all of them, but you met enough that you should be able to qualify for the deduction anyway. Um, the problem was that there were just so many errors uh, in the form 8283 and, and the appraiser not being, uh, or the person who made the determination of fair market value not being an appraiser, that the court basically uh, <laughs> basically sat there and said they didn't even come close to, to that lower standard. Um, one of the things that was important in this case, um, under the tax court rules, you can submit a case, what's, what's referred to as uh, fully stipulated and what that does is essentially it avoids having to actually go to trial you're telling the court in a document stipulation of facts these are all the facts the parties both agree on but you know there aren't necessarily any facts that they disagree that the court needs to have a trial to figure out which facts are correct and which are not 
um, it can be a good uh, mechanism to save costs because you don't have to prepare for trial. Obviously, uh, attorney's fees are going to be lower if there's no preparation for trial, and it's, it's simply going to be a stipulation of facts. Um, one of the problems with this mechanism is, though, taxpayers bear the burden of proof. And Jason, you mentioned this earlier. You know, they, they're the ones that have to prove, um, you know, that the notice deficiency determinations are incorrect. The, the IRS doesn't necessarily have to do anything. They can win just on a failure to meet uh, the burden of proof um, in the case. And the issue is when you fully stipulate a case, um, and you miss certain facts or you don't convince the court and meet your burden of proof because it's just a document, um, the court is kind of stuck in the situation of, well, you didn't meet your burden of proof and you, you, know, you lose on that. And you may alternatively have had a better shot if you had gone through the actual trial. And, and the court kind of goes into that, that in this case, the taxpayer failed to meet their burden of proof under uh, the fully stipulated tax court procedure rules. And, you know, another issue was that they didn't provide an expert, which is necessary in these cases to determine fair market value. Um, and without an expert, the, the, the court was kind of guessing, you know, it could be 200,000, it could have been 60,000. They just didn't have anything to really grab onto for their analysis. So it was a big loss for the taxpayer. They, they gave a donation, obviously. It would have had some value. It's it's just they weren't able to prove what the value was. You know, Matt, there's there has for many years now been a very big push um, within the tax court and in the bar, I guess, in favor of more stipulations. And in fact, it's it's required to stipulate to any you know any undisputed facts. Um, but it does take <laughs> you know. You, there is a concept here that it, it can take a little bit out of the trial advocacy and uh, and the ability to convey, you know, credibility when you've got a credible taxpayer or witness. Um, and, and there's also a sense that, you know, a concept, I guess I should have said, that where something has been fully stipulated or stipulated, but, you know, there are other facts testimony that covers those stipulated items may be irrelevant, uh, you know, within the meaning of the evidence rules um, because it's not a disputed fact. Yeah. And, exactly. uh, you know, it can kind of cabin, I think what you're, you know, what you're able, you know, just in the big picture to, to convey. Sometimes it is nice to put a, to put a face and a voice behind your cause uh, and get that in front of a judge. So let's try the, the next one. I am going to butcher the name on this, um, but I'll take a, take a wild guess. It's Wazukuk v. Commissioner. And uh, as I heard that come out of my mouth, I uh, immediately thought there is no way that that is right. But um, <laughs> it's better than I could have done, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it could have been much worse uh, out of mine, but... But at any rate, interesting case, but one I think we'll be able to dispose of pretty quickly. This, this was another whistleblower case. We see one of these, it seems like, every week, if, if not more than one. The taxpayer here had filed a whistleblower claim, file, uh, filed a Form 211, 
or IRS Form 211. Interesting allegations, at least. There, there were allegations against his, his former employer, who happened to be a not-for-profit 501c3, that it had failed to report unrelated business income and to pay on the order of $50 million over, over about a decade. There were further allegations that the whistle, you know, the, the taxpayer or former emplo, uh, em, employer had conspired with two state chartered agencies and a number of state government officials um, as part of its income producing activity. So procedurally here, it's kind of messy. The, the taxpayer had filed an original Form 211 whistleblower claim had uh, back in 2016. Didn't hear, you know, didn't hear anything. M Mom was the word from the IRS. And about two years later in 2018, sends sort of a follow-up, which was really intended to kind of push the original claim through the system. Um, at any rate, a few months later after that one, IRS comes back with a denial uh, of any whistleblower award. And then a few months after that, comes back with a denial on the second submission. So there, there's technically kind of two denials here covering really the same thing. At any rate, the, the taxpayer ends up petitioning against the last one. And the issue that's framed up for the court is whether the IRS whistleblower office abused its discretion in rejecting you know, this petitioner's whistleblower claim. Um, this was frankly a pretty easy one for the court to dispose of, and I don't think there's much of a credible argument that they got it wrong here. Um, they, they ended up granting the IRS's motion for summary judgment on this, and it, you know the, the bottom line is, it was clear on the evidence that the IRS had not you know, had not actually collected uh, any any funds and had had made a determination not to initiate administrative action against the the target. Um, so again, didn't collect any proceeds. So, you know, the rule is under the law, whistleblowers are generally just not entitled to an award unless the IRS's denial is an abuse of discretion, a very difficult thing to show, can be done, but you know, generally a difficult thing to show. And in any event, uh, no award is available under the statute if the IRS doesn't initiate an administrative action against the target or collect proceeds. Now look, going into a case where you're petitioning this, you don't always know, you know, you can't see behind that veil and, and know that, but but those turn out to be the case. And so I think, you know, on those facts, a pretty easy one for the tax court. And Jason, I'll just add, I mean, we've, we've kind of seen this theme with a, with a couple whistleblower cases, I think now on the podcast, and then obviously you, you and I have, have sat there and worked on some and, and seen different facts. But I, I mean, I would just reiterate um, to those that are doing the, the form 211 by themselves, which it looks like the taxpayer here did, or he was at least representing himself in the tax court. So I assume he probably filed or prepared and filed the 211 himself. 
I mean, you've really got to step back and say, okay, I need to, I need to throw forward a compelling story with, with support if I have it or a reason to kind of get the whistleblower office to move on the claim. And a lot of times, I mean, I hate to say it, but these whistleblower uh, office people, they're IRS employees. A lot of them have worked at different areas of the IRS and been moved to the whistleblower office. And they're kind of the first line that decides whether to refer this to exam. So they speak tax language. So, you know, it, it goes a long way, or at least I've seen, um, if you're able to say, hey, you know, uh, taxpayers uh, sitting there making fictitious deductions under one uh, that they're not allowed to do under 162 and kind of talking the language. It's almost like a language barrier. I've seen some get rejected just because the taxpayer wasn't able necessarily to convey the information in a way to get the whistleblower office to move. Uh, you're absolutely right. We, we come across these all the time. And the, the truth is a lot of whistleblower claims are filed, as you know, and only a very small fraction of them are actually, you know, acted on. And then a small portion of those, you know, does the IRS actually collect anything? And you do hear these outlier stories of some, you know, very large whistleblower awards, you know, that have been, that have been made um, over the years. But, but that is the reality. I agree. And, you know, what you and I see all the time is that they're not put together in the way that, you know, I think you, you say it right, that speaks, that speaks the language or, or that is compelling, you know, that really compels action. And, uh, you know, for, for those of us, you know, in the business of, of litigating and, and, and conducting trials and presenting, you know, storytelling, presenting uh, compelling stories that, that try to move people and persuade, it translates well into this area because that's what you've got to think of in terms of what you're doing is you've got to put together a compelling, credible case that really gets the attention of that first line person who has a lot of discretion and has a lot of ability to put this thing on the right path to actually get processed. And, uh, you know, I think all too often I see probably meritorious whistleblower claims that, you know, individuals, taxpayers just kind of did on their own and didn't really know what they were doing. And they just, for the most part, fall by the wayside. Yeah, and it's a, it's a shame. Um, you know, one other thing I'll, I'll point out in this case, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit unusual for the IRS whistleblower office to wait two years um, to make any type of determination. I mean, it's not far-fetched, but, but in general, they, they do tend to get back to you quicker than that. But I will say in 2019, Congress passed the Taxpayer First Act and was probably a result of, of this case of having to wait and not hear anything. Um, Congress amended Section 6103 of the Code to require the IRS whistleblower office to keep the whistleblower more informed of what's going on. So under the TFA, uh, the IRS is actually required to notify the whistleblower when the claim has been referred by the IRS to uh, audit or exam, um, when the target has made a payment. And also the whistleblower can make a request for an update 
on the status and stage of the whistleblower's claim and they're required to respond. And I think that probably would have come in handy here <laughs> for Mr. Uh, Wazkook, and I butchered it myself, but the <laughs> taxpayer, um, to kind of find out more what was going on. Great. You want to take the last one, Matt? Yeah, let, let's wrap it up. So this one is Coe v. Commissioner, uh, TC Memo 2020-77. Um, this one is, is a, a kind of lesson on procedure um, in tax court, which, which obviously, Jason, you, you and I do a lot of. Um, but this one was the taxpayer made a uh, or sought judgment on the pleadings with respect to certain penalties that have been um, asserted against him by IRS chief counsel in the answer to the petition. So going back to the cases we talked about earlier, this is another 6751B case. Um, there is authority out there and even court of appeals have said that if the penalty has not been communicated in a formal document um, with appeals rights, et cetera, during exam, that if you file the petition in tax court, the IRS chief counsel can actually assert the penalty for the first time, assuming it hasn't been you know, um, improperly communicated to the taxpayer prior to it. If chief counsel does it, they still have to get written managerial approval. And in many cases, what chief counsel will do here is the, uh, the uh, lower IRS chief counsel attorney um, on, on the answer, the higher uh, RS chief counsel, in other words, the, the higher manager will sign off um, on the answer and the, and the courts have pretty much said that that's sufficient to uh, meet the requirements of 6751. Um, what the taxpayer's attorney did here is move for judgment on the pleadings and that's essentially a procedural device that, that tells the court, um, you know, on this one issue, I'm, I'm entitled to judgment as a matter of law on that particular issue, we you know we don't need to go to trial. Um, it, it's kind of similar, I guess, to a motion for summary judgment. It's just at a, at a earlier stage in the proceeding. Um, and what the attorney was arguing is essentially that well, um, you know, I don't think that the chief counsel's um, manager, that the higher up official that signed the answer has sufficient authority to make the 6751 uh, B determination or to approve it. Um, the, the issue was, or the, that the court picked up on was, it's been well established in, in prior tax court jurisprudence that the IRS chief counsel has always had the ability to assert penalties in the answer. Um, and this goes back, you know, for, for some time and the, the court wasn't willing to kind of to unsettle that settled law. Um, so the court denied the judgment on the pleadings um, in this case. And I, I guess the cautionary tale here, Jason, is um, it kind of puts you in a, in a spot if you're counsel for the taxpayer because, um, you know, if the notice of deficiency has been issued and you don't file within 90 days, the, the tax will be assessed, but the penalty has not been proposed at that stage. So, so you end up in a situation where you, you're, you file a petition in, in tax court to try to challenge it, 
and chief counsel comes in and says, well, we're going to add a 20% accuracy related penalty to it. And if you lose on all those issues at court, you're actually in a worse position than if you had simply not filed the petition in the first place. That's a, it's an interesting point. It's, uh, um, you know, you don't see it that much, but it is a bit of a hammer that chief counsel has, you know, in, in raising this. Now, you know, with it, when it comes to penalties, I mean, taking it a step further, when it comes to penalties, you know, that burden is generally always going to be on the service to demonstrate. Generally, when the IRS, you know, amends, or, or well, not amends, but um, asserts uh, a counterclaim, I guess, in its, in its answer to the petition, it can even, you know, it can even add additional claims for tax. Um, but it, you know, unlike the situation we talked about earlier where the, where the general law is, you know, the burdens on the taxpayer, that the burden actually shifts in that, you know, in that procedural context uh, to the IRS. But those are definitely, you know, those are some of the higher level, more sophisticated uh, considerations that you go through, um, you know, and thinking through these cases. And one thing I'll, I'll point out, I was looking at this as, as we're talking through this case, pulled it up and it involves some of my, my very favorite people in the, uh, in the national tax bar. Uh, you know, for, for one, I see the, the attorney representing the taxpayers, uh, the, the unbelievable Frank Agostino, who is is just a a well known figure, uh, as likable as they come, and really one of one of the preeminent tax litigators uh, in in the country, without a doubt, um, and, and a good a good friend of the firm, and and somebody we've you know we we really look to. And then I noticed the judge is is Judge Travis Greaves, who is the newest member of the tax court, and is. Uh, is a good friend, actually a, a former Texas boy who, who spent some time in Louisiana and then DC uh, started his own firm about the same time, about six months, Matt, after I initially started this firm and uh, and then was ended up working in the administration and DOJ and then uh, was was given the nod to join the tax court um, I, you know a relatively young member um, um, and uh, and a fantastic just very talented tax jurist and I think he's gonna be uh, you know we'll see a lot of great things out of him but I am gonna have to tell him I'm uh, he, he needs to throw throw us practitioners on the uh, the good side of the V the the non-government practitioners a bone um not, not not the direction we want his judgeship to start now agreed with that jason <laughs> on all counts well matt i think that that wraps up the cases for this past week at least the at least the substantive cases uh and opinions uh anything else to add i think that's it okay well listen we we appreciate everyone tuning in we will have another installment coming up really in just a few days uh we hope you'll all join us for the next round of the freeman law project